here. And I wanted to begin today with a question. It's a question we talk about when we hang out with friends, at least to heated discussions. And the question is, who is the greatest? You think about it in the context of uh, just different things. Maybe we'll pick some. Here we got films. Who's the greatest actress ever? I, I picked some here. I did not include Miley Cyrus. I just didn't feel like she made the cut. But um, anyway, we have some here. And depending on your age, you may have your preference. We also have like athletes. You know, who's, your, who's the greatest athlete ever? I mean, for me, I think it's between, at least if these are the only four, it's between Jordan and Ali. That's just me. We also have presidents. I'm not going to touch this one. You can continue arguing about politics on Facebook. And then we have bands. You know, notice, notice most of these bands are from Britain, which I'm not sure why, but apparently they produce really good bands. On the left, that's the Eagles. If you're younger than 35 or 40 and you didn't grow up with the Eagles. Um, but what's interesting about these kind of discussions, whether it's a band or an athlete or a president, is it's difficult to all agree on who the greatest is because often we don't agree on what the definition of greatness is. It's difficult to come together and say, okay, we can agree this person is the greatest if we're operating from different criteria. And often what happens when we debate things like this is that we come at it from different perspectives. We have a different understanding, and because of that, we get a different result. This fall, we're diving into a book of the Bible called Philippians. It's written by a man named Paul to a church in a city called Philippi. And that church lived in a time and a place where they would have answered this question in a really unique way. They would have answered the question, who is the greatest? Probably one of two ways. The first person they would have said was great was a man who had great in his name. Alexander the Great. I mean, if you have great in your name, you should meet the, you know, category. Alexander makes me feel a little bit, you know, um, inadequate when it comes to my life. At age 20, which, is, mind you, is younger than, he couldn't even drink in America, but, but he could run an empire. Um, and so at age 20, he became leader of the Greek empire. And by 33, I turn 33 next year, um, he died having conquered the whole known Roman world, including Philippi. So they would have thought of this man when they thought of greatness. He, he had power. He had influence. He did a lot at a really young age. Another man they would have thought of is a man that we know as Caesar Augustus. He was first before he was the emperor known as Octavian. He was a, a general. And he brought peace to the empire. If you remember your world history course, it's called the Pax Romana. He united the whole known world under the Roman Empire and became known as Caesar Augustus. And he also brought peace to Philippi. So when people in Philippi thought of greatness, they probably thought of Alexander the Great or Caesar Augustus. Powerful, military, strong empire leaders. And then they meet through Paul, a man named Jesus. Who doesn't look anything like Caesar Augustus? who looks nothing like Alexander the Great. And in fact, he takes their definition and understanding of greatness and he turns it upside down. In fact, in a conversation with a couple friends one day, Jesus is asked, hey, can we be the greatest in your kingdom? It's a bold question. And Jesus offers a bold response. In Mark 10, it's recorded that Jesus said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. That's Caesar Augustus. That's Alexander the Great. Power is being in charge and ruling people. But Jesus says this, but it shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus does what he has become notorious for. He takes the common understanding of people of his day, and he turns it upside down. And so in this series, as we talk about what it means to live as people with hope, Jesus is going to turn our understanding upside down. As we look to him, he's going to shape and mold how we view the world, and we need to be prepared that it's not going to be the way that we would normally operate. It's not going to be the way we would kind of normally go at things. He's going to challenge the way we see everything. And so this morning, as we talk about what it means to be people of hope, this is our central idea, that our hope in Jesus guides and empowers us to serve others. When you walked in this morning, you got a bulletin, and your bulletin is a handout says hope dealers at the top, and you can fill in this big idea, follow along in your notes this morning. As we focus our hope in Jesus, he will guide and empower us to serve other people. Now this morning, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if you have a physical Bible, you're about 90% of the way through the Bible between Ephesians and Colossians. If you're in digital Bible, just keep scrolling down. You'll hit Philippians near the end. And one of the things we're going to do today is that we're going to read the verses out of order. This is not like when you were playing a record back in the 70s, listening to it backwards, hearing demon voices, you know, not like that. You could do that with the eagles, but we're not doing that today. What we're going to do is we're going to read it out of order for a specific purpose, but you're going to have to follow with me, and I'll tell you about that purpose a little bit later. What's interesting, though, is we're going to start in verse 5, And if you look down in your Bible, you'll see that this section, verses 5 through 11, is kind of indented differently. It's kind of got different formatting. And the reason that is, is because this passage was commonly used by the early church when they got together like we're getting together today. They didn't sing songs like Blessed Assurance because English wasn't in the language yet. They used this passage as part of their worship gatherings. It's actually recorded in one of the first... um, non-biblical sources we have, a a book called the Didache. It's spelled D-I-D-A-C-H-E. And we're not sure if if this was, was in the Didache and Paul like quoted it, or if Paul wrote it first and the Didache quoted it, but it was used commonly by the earliest believers as a a worship um, song or a worship reading of sorts. And so what we're reading today has been used since the earliest days of the church. And it's a picture of who Jesus is, and it gives us a guide about how we're supposed to live. I believe we'll see in this passage four ways that our hope in Jesus guides us. And we see the first of these ways in verse 5 and verse 6, and this is what it reads. Paul says, "'Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped.'" You see, we see Jesus in this passage thinking of others, not himself. In this passage, we see Jesus thinking of other people, not himself. And what's so interesting to me, just right off the top, is if anybody had a right to be self-absorbed, it's God. Because he literally is the greatest thing ever. He literally is the creator of everything. He literally is the source of everything. He is that awesome And yet God in the flesh, Jesus, is not thinking about himself. He's thinking about other people. 
and he's guiding us and calling us to do the same thing. And in that world, that was a controversial, challenging idea. It challenged those early believers. And that's what Jesus did. He's constantly challenging the way that we see the world. And he even does that today. He challenges our American ideas. He challenges our culture. If you've ever traveled abroad, and I've had the privilege of being to four or five different countries, one of the things people will tell you about Americans abroad is that we're loud. We're very, very loud. And so if you've been prepared to do any mission work abroad in a group, the people who trained you probably said, hey, be careful when you're in a group about how loud you are, because Americans are notorious for being loud. I've talked to people in other countries, Canada, China, even Zambia, and they said, hey, Americans are known for being, how, how should I say this, assertive, pushy, getting what they want. We're known for being arrogant. We're known for looking out for number one. All of these words are just normal to us. They're like a fish swimming in water. It's just part of the world that we live in. And yet we look at the example of Jesus and he says, have this mind in you that was in me. Think of others, not yourself. See, even 2,000 years later, Jesus is challenging us about what it means to be his follower. Not looking out for number one, but looking out for other people. And that's why sometimes I think it's hard, maybe even the hardest place in the world to be a follower of Jesus is here in America. Because I think some of our national values that we aren't even aware of, they work against what it means to follow Jesus. He continues in verse seven, Paul does. He says, but Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. You see here, we see Jesus serve others. We see Jesus literally serve others. He takes the form of a servant. He doesn't take the form of an emperor like Augustus. He doesn't have the form of Alexander, a conquering king. No, he takes the form of a servant. And what's so interesting about serving is that when I serve you, I declare that you have value and worth. And one of the easiest places to see this is in restaurants. Has anyone here ever been to Chick-fil-A? Raise your hand. Okay. I love Chick-fil-A. Prescott would be a much better place to live when they finally build a Chick-fil-A in Prescott Valley. I'm just telling you, the quality of life is going to go way up. And if you've been to Chick-fil-A and you walk in, the thing that you'll experience is they treat you with honor. You walk up, hi, sir, how's your day going? How can I help you? And then they come to your table. Can I get you a refill? I go, yes, thank you. They go, my pleasure. They're little my pleasure robots. You say anything, my pleasure. Can I get more of that? My pleasure. I went to the bathroom, my pleasure. You know, like it's just, it's just, it's everything, my pleasure. And it's so, it's just a different experience to go eat there. But there are other fast food restaurants, burger restaurants. You walk up, it's like, excuse me, hi. I want to give you money. You want to take it? You know, like people don't even acknowledge you're there. You say thank you. And they're like, you know, when they don't serve you, what does it communicate? You feel like you don't have any value to them. You feel like you don't have any worth to them. See what Jesus does when he serves is he communicates that we have value. 
I mean, if anybody has value, it's God. And yet he is concerned with serving us and communicating that we have value, that we have worth. I read a quote a couple years ago and it cut me to the core and it hasn't stopped since. The quote is, if serving is below you, then leading is beyond you. Right? If serving is below you, then leading is beyond you. If you cannot serve and put aside your own self-interest, put aside your own concerns to be concerned with other people, then leading is beyond you because you can't be trusted with it. See, Jesus says that he who's faithful and little be faithful and much, I think what he's saying is that if you can serve, if you can set aside your own ego, your own self-interest and serve other people, then you can be trusted to lead and to do it in a way that will not hurt and abuse people. If serving is below you, then leading is beyond you. In verse eight, we see Paul continuing. He says, and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here, we see Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus gives us a guide about what it means to apply our hope to the world, and it comes through sacrifice. Jesus was completely humiliated. He was beaten. He was abused. He was the victim of injustice. He went through unconscionable suffering and pain and loss. A few weeks ago, I asked what your favorite movie was. We talked about the value of conflict in movies. And if you go back to that favorite movie in your mind that you have, most of us have seen our favorite movies a lot, like 10 times, 20 times, 30 times. I love The Sandlot, you know, that movie about the little boys and baseball, Wendy Peppercorn, you know. Um, I think I've seen that movie like 40 times. And I can quote all the lines. My wife has seen Aladdin so many times, she can sing every song in the entire movie. How many of you have seen The Passion of the Christ? Raise your hand. Anybody seen it 40 times? We don't want to face that. We don't want to face the suffering and the sacrifice and the pain and the loss. On Friday night, you have an option. Oh, Passion of the Christ or that? Ooh, that's a little bit. Let's watch something else, you know? Like, we don't like to face the sacrifice and the pain of Jesus, and yet it's the best picture we have of the life that he calls us to. In fact, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright said, God is most known clearly when he abandons his rights for the sake of the world. The best picture we get of Jesus is when he sets aside all of his rights and privileges and entitlements to serve and give himself away. If you want to see Jesus most clearly, look at the cross. That's what God is like. And if we're going to follow in his footsteps, then sacrifice has to be part of our life too. If we're going to be people who live with hope and give hope away, then sacrifice has to be part of our experience too. There's a lot of us that love the title Christian. We just haven't bought into the job description yet. We love the idea of being a little Christ, but when push comes to shove and we see what that means, I'm not sure I want to do that. And yet it was the sacrifice of the early church that led the church to thrive. You got to understand that days after Jesus, it was illegal to be a Christian. You'd show up to church and go, hey, where's Bob? Oh, he was crucified this week. That's never happened to you on a Sunday morning. Oh, where's that person? Well, they're out hunting. They're out fishing. 
their, their kids are sick with the hand, foot, and mouth thing, you know? But you've never turned and said, hey, where's your mind? Oh, yeah, he got, he got killed this week for his faith. And yet that was their daily life. And what compelled them to run into cities when the plague came in and the people ran out was that Jesus had sacrificed everything for them. So it wasn't crazy at all for them to sacrifice themselves. That's the kind of hope they had in Christ. It guided them to sacrifice. Paul concludes this section, the the zenith of this passage in verses 9 through 11. He says, after all this, therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, here we see Jesus glorify his Father. The final scene Paul paints us of of the experience we're going to have with Jesus is that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess on earth that Jesus Christ truly is Lord. That's the result. As Jesus humbles himself, sacrifices, serves, thinks of others, his Father exalts him. The final scene, scene we long for in our lives is for Jesus to look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. He doesn't say good and faithful leader. He doesn't say good and faithful person in charge. Good and faithful, big deal, and you know it. Well done, good and faithful, it's all about you person. He says, no, well done, good and faithful servant. See, Jesus glorifies his father most when he serves. And I have to tell you, I I grew up in the church, and what that means is that I had this experience where people would use words And I would nod my head and then go, what does that mean? Because I don't want to look bad like the one didn't know the answers. It happens to you sometimes too, I'm sure. The word glorify is pretty simple in its meaning. It means to raise someone or something up to make it easier to see. When, When something or someone is glorified, they're raised up so that they're easier to see. They're given more exposure, more notoriety, a larger platform. You say, man, that person really glorifies that. What do they do? They raise it up so that it's easier to see and it has more attention. So when Jesus glorifies his father, what it means is that he makes his father easier to see. He makes who God is easier to see by his life. The question for us is, are we making God easier or more difficult to see? When people look at us, is it easier to see God because they're looking at us or is it more difficult? Are we making their vision clearer or more cloudy when it comes to who God is? See, I, I read through this passage, and like you, I'm, I'm convicted. I see all the things and all the places in my life where I'm not yet who I'm supposed to be. All the places where there's a gap between Jesus and me in the way that I live every day. And the reason that I broke this passage up the way I did is that exact reality. Because most of us, when we come to church or read the Bible, we recognize the gap the gap in me, between who God is and who I am, between who God's calling me to be and where I am today. And our temptation as Americans is when we hear that to go, okay, I'm making a to-do list of all the things I need to do this week to be a better person, and I'm going to buck up and try harder Monday morning to do it. And what happens? By Tuesday, we face plant. Because nobody can be perfect. Nobody can hold it all together. 
Nobody can narrow the gap on their own. If you could narrow the gap on your own, there'd be no need for Jesus to die. And so our tendency when faced with a picture of Jesus is to look to ourselves as the source to get it done. And yet here what we see is that Jesus is not only the guide, but he's the empowering force. God does not call you to a life that you can live on your own. No, God calls you to a life and then he equips you and empowers you to live that life. Let me say it this way. What we do as followers of Christ, it flows from who we are in Christ. And so you are a person today, if you've accepted the love and grace of Jesus, you are a new creation 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. God's grace is it's beating in your heart. And just as blood is coming to your heart through your aorta and it's leaving your heart to go throughout your body, God's grace is at work in your body too. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, if you are a follower of Jesus, it beats in your heart. Two, and that's the source of life that enables you to live this all out. And I have to tell you, you're going to be a bitter, angry, cynical, depressed Christian if you try to live this out all in your own power. I love what Dallas Willard calls it. He calls it the gospel of sin management. That's how many of us live. Just try to do less bad things so God will love you more. That's not in the Bible, that's not our gospel. And the reason I read this out of order is I want you to make, I want to make sure that you don't walk out of here today thinking, okay, I have to do all these things better. No, you need to put your hope in Jesus. You need to get obsessed with him. You need to look to him, not only as your guide and your example, but as your empowering force that enables you to live this out. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go back now to verses one through four and see four ways that our hope in Jesus empowers us. Here is what Jesus is going to empower you to do if you have a relationship with him through his grace and love. In verses one and two, this is what we read. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, stop right there. He doesn't say if there's any desire in your heart to work hard. He doesn't say if you've been to church every Sunday in 2016. No, all of those things are about our life with God and what he does in us. He says, therefore, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The first thing that we're empowered by is we're empowered to gain a Christ-like attitude. When we're empowered in this way, we gain a Christ-like attitude. You see, when, when, when you go to work tomorrow or you wake up tomorrow and start attacking your day, I can promise you this. There are going to be things that happen that you didn't plan for. There are going to be things that happen that you're not in control of. There are going to be things that happen to you tomorrow that you're not really excited about. I wish you could change it. The one thing that you can control is your attitude. You can choose your response. And what Paul is saying here is be of the same mind and have the mind of Jesus. You know, unity is a big subject here for Paul. Pastor Tom brought it up last week. Paul brings it up again here. And the kind of unity we're talking about is not all of you thinking like Scott. Because if you all think like Scott, you're going to have flaws in your thinking. No, unity is not us all thinking like each other. Unity means we all think like Jesus. 
That's the kind of unity we're calling you to. Not so that you agree with me or your small group leader or another staff member here or one of the elders. No, our call is to have the mind of Jesus and to unite in that mind. And we're empowered to do that by Jesus. He begins to birth his mind in us. We read it earlier, Philippians 2.5 in the New Living Translation says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. That's your memory verse for this week. Just, I want to check how things are going. How many of you have attempted, now word, attempt, picked it, attempted to memorize a verse in this series so far? Raise your hand. Okay. There's no gold star chart right here, so don't feel bad. You know, we're not keeping track of anything. But the reason that we're calling you to attempt and to pursue memorizing one of these verses is that when you have a moment this week where something happens to you that you didn't plan for, something happens to you that you're not in control of, something goes on in our world that you're not a big fan of, you can in that moment go, you know what? I have the power to respond like Jesus would. I can have his attitude. He has empowered me to do that. And if you have that verse up, there's a white index card in your bulletin to write it down if you want to. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had that can be a great reminder to you as you seek to live this out. Paul continues in verse 3 with more encouraging, not even convicting stuff at all. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. You see, we're empowered by Jesus so that we can reject selfish ambition and ego. Part of what putting our hope in Jesus means is that we're empowered to reject our ambition and our ego. Another translation, translate these two words, rivalry and strife. And I have to tell you, I haven't been a pastor for a a ton of years, but here's been my experience. More churches are torn apart by internal conflict than by external opposition. Way, way more. It's not even close. And I'm new to Prescott. I don't know a whole lot. I haven't got lost yet. I'm proud of that. Because roads have like five names here, you know. It's Willow Creek and then Miller Valley, and then I don't know what the heck it is after that, you know. And Yeah, Grove. I mean, who, who names these streets? I mean, just pick one. Um, but this is the story of churches in our city even. So many churches in our city have experienced this. Not external opposition. Not a hostile culture. But internal fighting. And we can go to our world all we want and announce that we have hope, that Jesus Christ can change their life. But if when they show up, we fight like dogs with one another, they're not going to take us seriously. Because what we do is so much louder than what we say. And if we're going to be people who deal hope, we're going to have to reject our ambition and our ego. Paul continues, he says, but in humility, not in ambition, not in ego, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. See, we're empowered to focus on the significance of others. We're empowered to focus on the significance of others, not our own significance, not how many likes we have, not how many friends we have, not how much popularity we have, but the significance of other people. And one of the difficult things about this calling is that it exposes our insecurity. Because if you're always propping up your own significance, it's probably because you're insecure. 
See, Paul says, no, when you know who you are in Christ, when you live out of that identity, then it enables you to focus on the significance of other people. So are you living out of insecurity? Because if you are living out of insecurity, what will happen is that you can't actually live the life that God has called you to live. Because what you do flows out of who you are. And out of insecurity flows a life that's constantly propping ourselves up, trying to make ourselves feel more significant. But when we know who we are in Christ and the hope that we have because of that, it enables us to focus on the significance of others. If this is, this is a struggle for you, I've got a, a really simple, it's going to seem like it's a non-spiritual activity for this week. Each day this week, I want to challenge you to tell one person, you know what? You're really good at blank. You say, Scott, what will that do? For about 10 seconds, it'll pull the focus off you. And it'll focus on the significance of other people. And if you focus on being someone who encourages and lifts up other people, you'll find the focus leaving you and propping up your own ego. I do this all the time. Not because I'm a great person, but because I have years of struggling with insecurity. And I don't want to go back into that place. I want to stay in the place where I'm confident and I know who I am in Jesus Christ. Paul concludes this section with this verse in verse 4. He says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We see here that we are empowered to place the interest of others above our own. And if anything else happens in this passage, before Paul goes on to the section about what Jesus did, he says, hey, at the end of the day, it's not about you. The best-selling nonfiction book next to the Bible in American history is The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. And it starts with these simple words, it's not about you. Personally, the book goes down from there. I mean, you can just close it after that point. And then that was the best part of it for me. I mean, it's not about you. Um, I'm, not, I'm not bashing Rick Warren. He's, he's written a, a very you know, exhaustive book to help us lean into our purpose. But that first statement should stop you in your tracks. It's not about you. And if you're going to follow Jesus, it can't be about you. It has to be about Jesus and it has to be about other people. See, the more we become like Jesus, the more unselfish we become. That's why it's so frustrating when you meet someone who claims to have so much faith and they're so self-absorbed. That's why it's hard to be around somebody who claims to have all this hope in Jesus and yet they're so worried about themselves. No, as we live with our hope in Jesus, it frees us from our concern about ourselves and it frees us to serve other people. And I want to give you a visible picture of that this morning. When you walked in, you got a bulletin. In two of your bulletins, there's a purple post-it note. I need to know if you're that person today. Do you have a purple post-it note in your bulletin? It's kind of like Willy Wonka, but not gold. It's purple. If you have the purple post-it note, I need you to raise your hand. Okay, anybody? If you have it, you could, you, could you come forward if you have it in your bulletin? Anybody else have a purple post-it note? Yeah, come forward, please. So Jesus gives us the best picture of what it means to be a person like this. If you can come over right over here to the steps. They're going to pull a couple chairs out for you. Jesus gives us the best picture of this. 
It's a picture that the world still doesn't know what to do with. On the last night of Jesus' life, he doesn't assert his own agenda. He doesn't make things all about him. He humbles himself, takes off all of his fancy clothes. He gets down on his knees. I think I have some people bringing you guys chairs. Can I get my chairs, my helpers, please? Okay. While they're doing that, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. It's a picture that the world still doesn't know what to do with. If anyone should have ego, it's Jesus. If anybody has power, it's Jesus. If anybody should make it about him, it's Jesus. And what does he do? He gets down and he washes men's feet. And 2,000 years later, it's still uncomfortable and awkward. But you know what? It's the picture we have of what it means to be a person who takes the hope they have and puts it into practice. Guys, this is how we change the world. It's not through power. It's not through politics. It's not through money. It's not through position. It's this. It's when we lay aside our self-interests. It's when we lay aside our ambition and our ego and the things that would make us significant. And we say, you know what? I am going to give myself away. I'm going to sacrifice myself so I can serve other people. And that, my friends, is something our world still doesn't know what to do with. The band is going to come up right now. They're going to lead us in a song called Glory to God, a reminder that our lives should lift and raise up who God is, making clear to see. And yes, I'm going to wash these guys' feet while they sing that song because that's what I want my leadership to be like. That's what I want our lives to be like. And all week long, I want you to look for an opportunity to serve and give yourself away. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.